Welcome to First Star Let's Chat, an athletic therapy podcast. I'm your host, James Gardner, certified athletic therapist, certified strength and conditioning specialist, yoga instructor, human being. This platform, for the pros, by the pros, anybody in the performance space, and beyond. Welcome here to share in the stories of professionals, experiences, journeys, learning along the way. It's a platform to connect, to network, and to be a part of a community that cares with conversations that matter, experiences that resonate, and generate ideas, thought-provoking, organic dialogue, passionate probes. Brought to you as always by First Star Therapy, Mobility Tape, Epic, and Benchmark Athletics. In association with the Canadian Athletic Therapist Association, it's First Star Let's Chat, an athletic therapy podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you for being a part of it. Here we go. Session 109. There's been a little hiatus here since our last one, since our brief stop in Winnipeg. This is Let's Chat, an athletic therapy podcast, the official podcast of WFAT, the World Federation of Athletic Trainers and Therapists. We are humbled, honored, and grateful to have Rick Griffin with us today. Again, a returning guest. We had an opportunity to have a little bit of overlap at the World Congress back in May in Winnipeg. Um, Rick, uh, a lifetime in the game of baseball, a lifetime uh, exploring athletic training. I'll just go through your bio quickly and then would love to share your story with the audience and and sort of pick your brain on a lot of the, the growth development and other things within the profession. So uh, in 1983, he was named the Mariners head athletic trainer and served that capacity for 35 years until 2016. At that point, he was given the title of Mariners athletic trainer emeritus for the next three years. In that role, overseeing the medical aspects of the MLB draft for the Seattle Mariners until his retirement in 2019. In 1999, he was awarded the Professional Baseball Athletic Trainers Society Award. The Al Moose Clausen Community Service Award was conferred upon him in 2018. Rick has made 25 trips to Japan with Major League Baseball teams and has been an advisor to Japanese teams and trainers in Japan over the last three decades. He's also served as a trainer at an all-star game in each of the last four decades. No small feats in that bio, Rick. A, a real pleasure to have you and see you again here. Well, it's a pl- my pleasure to be here and, and uh, excited to talk to you again. I had a great time last time when we visited. Yeah, and I think um, uh, a lot of maybe some of our listeners had a chance to, to, to hear uh, your point of view. It wasn't long enough for, for my take, you know, a baseball guy through and through and, um, um, you know, lots of stories and lots to share through your career. One thing you touched on, and I'd love to jump into it just before we get into sort of how you found athletic training, but um, you touched on the growth of this profession and the growth of the profession in baseball the last time we chatted. Um, and that rendered a lot of thoughts in my mind. And I think one of the big pieces for um, students coming out and new trainers, uh, they see things the way that they see things. You've seen things over uh, a very long and, and sort of storied career. Um, what are some of the major changes that you can speak to in the profession uh, from the start to where you're at now? Well, there, there's a lot of lot of changes, and they come from different viewpoints and different points of view. One of the things, when I started in professional baseball, the 
athletes themselves, they did not want to go into the training room. It was, it was kind of a sign of weakness or a sign of fear because they felt like you would go and tell the manager they were hurt and then the manager wouldn't play them and they had to either get released or get sent down. So one of the absolute biggest changes is now that's the exact opposite. The last team meeting I was in with the Seattle Mariners, the, the manager of the team said, you need to go into the training room even if you have a hangnail we want to make sure that everything gets taken care of quickly so it doesn't turn into something big. So the mindset and the, and the thought process now is go use the athletic trainers, use the therapists, use the strength and conditioning staff. And because of that, uh, when I started, I was by myself for my first nine years in the big leagues. So I had in spring training, I had 70 players and I was I was by myself. And if you can imagine, you know, working on 70 players or being responsible for 70 players, uh, it, it was it was grueling and then doing that for the whole season and then the off season. And then after that, then we we got a new owner and he asked me, what is something I can do to help you? And I said, if I could have an assistant, that would be great, because at that time, the Mariners and the Cincinnati Reds were the only two teams that didn't have a full time assistant. And so uh, I finally got it. Finally got a full time assistant. And, and that was great. That that meant so much not only to me but to the players because you you always want to try to do the best you can for the players and give them the best quality care and consistent care when you have two sets of hands versus one they're obviously going to get more treatments better treatments longer treatments and now the present day athletic training staffs in major league baseball they usually have four or five people um they all have a physical therapist they all have a massage therapist and they usually have two or three athletic trainers and then they also have two strength and conditioning staff and uh, we were lucky in the sense that we were able to kind of set up the model model program of how things were done. And it's been copied pretty much by most of the teams in baseball. And, and what I mean by that is we we established a program is when the team went on the road, um, one of the athletic trainers would stay back and work with the people who were doing rehab before when I started, uh, when I took over for the Mariners, when the team went on the road, the guys that were hurt, they left them home. And they, they sat at home and did whatever. I don't know what they did. They drank beer, went to the bars, you know, but they, they weren't doing any rehab and they weren't doing anything to get better other than just time. And so that's that's an established program. And plus, most of the teams now have uh, facilities at their spring training complex where they send all their minor league players. And so it's really grown. Uh, it's opened up a lot of jobs. There's a lot of job opportunities now. Each team has probably between 10 and 15 athletic trainers on their staff from the major league all the way down to the minor leagues even included in the dominican republic so there's just been tremendous growth in in that aspect yeah and i think seeing those things and and having you know members of um, the athletic training society or, or students in the field you know, looking to get in um, recognize that is important you know there weren't so many jobs before there, there's still not that many jobs obviously it's a competitive environment to get into um, trying to find you know time and space to get into these organizations but internships and we can get into that with PBATs as well I know you're, you're, you you uh, represent them and do such a great job in terms of the education and the internship programs there but um, yeah the growth of the profession and number of roles and, and I think that piece you touched on is massive, moving sort of more towards management and performance preparation as opposed to just responding when somebody's hurt. And I think sort of that proactive approach to, to athletic training, athletic therapy here in Canada um, goes such a long way in in collaboration with the strength coaches and the, the sports medicine staffs across the board. Um, we could talk about all of this for, for days and days and days, but I, I do want to just backtrack a little bit and and uh, and dive into 
you know, how did you find athletic training? How did you find your way into baseball? It's um, you don't find too many people in any job, in any role, in any area um, of work that stay in the same place for 35 years. I mean, longevity is one thing, but longevity in baseball, this is not, this is not an easy world to work in and live in and, and long days. And like you said, you started out with a large roster and on your own. So um, I guess where did the, where did the first itch for athletic training start and, and how did you make your way into baseball from there? Again, this could be a really long story, but I'll try to make it give you the short version. First <laughs> we'll of all, I, was, I, I talked to a lot of college students and I talked to a lot of high school students. And and the one thing I always say, and I, I model this after myself, because if I wouldn't have done things the way that I did them, I, I never would have got to where I was. And it just and, and I, I say, don't be afraid to hear the word no. I mean, you, you, you seek people out and you ask things, you ask either favors, you ask, can you observe, can you do an internship? And you might hear no a few times, but then you're going to finally hear yes. And when you do, then you're going to be lucky because you're going to have an opportunity for growth and to learn. And uh, I grew up in a very small town in Utah uh, and my high school did not have uh, an athletic trainer. And I played three sports. I played basketball, football, and I ran track and I really liked basketball and track. Uh, particularly track because I was I was pretty good at track and I always always kind of modeled myself in um, taking care of track athletes and I actually did some Olympic trials and I uh, was really into track didn't really have anything going on with baseball and um, I went to Utah State University and my freshman year I went to the spring football game and I was sitting down by the end zone and a wide receiver caught a pass and right as he crossed the goal line a guy hit him and you heard this crack it was like a crunch a crack and he grabbed his knee and he immediately knew that this guy was not doing real well and this gentleman ran out on the field and uh i'm going who is that guy is that guy the doctor and there was some guy behind me and he said oh he's, he's the athletic trainer and i go well, what is an athletic trainer and this was it this was in 1975 yeah i said 1975 so mm -hmm. it was a long time ago and uh, I didn't know what an athletic trainer was. And so the next day I took it upon myself to find this guy. And I found out where the athletic training room is. And I, I walked into the athletic training room and there are football players when they're uh, recovered from the spring game and they were doing treatments. And I asked him if I could talk to him for a few minutes. And, you know, he goes, who are you and how did you get in here? And I said, well, I just, I found out where you were. And I just walked in and I'm really, really interested in, in athletic training and what you do, because I, I'm in pre-med, I love sports, I like medicine, and this seems like something that I would really be interested in. And he actually, I was shocked he could have kicked me out, but he took me in his office and he talked to me for about 10 minutes and kind of told me what they did. And he said, look, we're going to be here for about three more weeks. If you want to come down here in the afternoons and kind of watch what we do, um, then we can talk. And so I went every day for three weeks. And at the end of the three weeks, he goes, I checked up on you. His name was Dale Mildenberger, who actually is in the NHA Hall of Fame and was my my mentor that was amazing and helped me. But he said, I checked up on you and, and I found out you were a good student and because uh, I was on an academic scholarship. So that helped. And he goes, I have three scholarships for student athletic trainers every year. And if you're interested and you want to do this, I'll give you one. And that was like my first huge break. So for the next three years, sophomore, junior, senior year, I worked in the athletic training room under him with three other gentlemen 
And uh, I got to cover pretty much every sport there was. That was right at the beginning of Title IX. So they they immediately had women's sports. And I covered women's sports. I did volleyball. I did track. I did basketball. And I also covered men's football, wrestling, and basketball. So I got a really good uh, indoctrination into what athletic training was. And I kind of went more the internship route. Uh, and then when I graduated, I had applied to a couple of schools to go into a master's program. And when I applied, there were only 12 schools that had master's programs. And so I applied to one on the East coast, one in Arizona and one at Oregon and Oregon. I was an alternate and the other two I didn't get in. So I was, I was pretty bummed, but I had a job lined up at the university of Utah to be a GTF. Well, um, the day I was supposed to go and start my schooling at the university of Utah, I got a phone call from the University of Oregon and they told me somebody dropped out. And if I wanted the spot, I could have it to go up and get my master's degree. And Dale Mildenberger told me, you are absolutely crazy if you don't do that, because there's there's three athletic training jobs in the state of Utah and you're not getting any of them at the colleges. (laughs) You're not going to those jobs aren't going anywhere. And so I took his advice and I moved to I moved to Oregon again. You know, I I had to make some tough choices and, and I figured I needed to challenge myself. I wanted to get my master's degree and this gave me an opportunity to go to at that time, one of the better programs, they had never had anyone fail the exam. And that was a big selling point. And they made sure and told me that no one's ever failed the exam. If you come here, you'll pass the exam and we have a 97% placement rate. So those were all great things. And I ended up getting placed in a high school and uh, I, I worked at the high school. I taught at the high school, worked on my master's and was also the trainer at the high school. So that was that first year was tough. It was it was a pretty tough year, a lot of hours, a lot of time. And then how I got into baseball and then we can move on. But I got into baseball in the most bizarre way. And again, luck played a huge role in a lot of the things that happened to me. I was in the trainer's workshop at the uh, trainer's room at the University of Oregon doing a Kramer workshop with the head trainer, Dean Adams, and the phone rang in his office. And we were in the middle of, you know, teaching coaches. And he said, hey, Rick, can you grab that? Uh, And you have to remember, there were no voice voicemails. There were no cell phones back then. He goes, so can you grab that? Because I've got a couple of calls coming in. I've got to make sure. So when I pick up the phone, it was a guy named Chief Bender from the Cincinnati Reds. And he introduced himself. And he said, I'm looking for an athletic trainer. Um, to work with our rookie ball team there in Eugene. And the reason I'm calling the University of Oregon is because I know you guys have an athletic training school, and I wonder if anybody there might be interested. And I said, well, tell me about the job. And so now this was going to be my first summer off because I had always worked in the summer, put myself through college, and I had worked. And so I had I had plans of going hiking and backpacking and spending a lot of time in the Oregon outdoors. Right. And he told me about the job, and I said, uh, I'll do it. And he goes, who the hell are you? (laughs) And I said, I'm Rick Griffin. I'm 22 years old. I have a master's degree and I'm certified. And he goes, you're hired. (laughs) And so that's how I got into baseball. And uh, my salary was $500 a month. So it was only a three-month season. So they played 70 games. So I made $500 a month. And when we went on the road, we got $5 to eat on. So think about eating your breakfast, lunch, and dinner for five bucks because that's how much money you got to eat. And I was so fortunate because I got to work with the same manager. I did that for four years. So I taught high school for four years. And in the summer, I did that for four years. And then had the same manager. who He ended up managing the San Diego Padres. And he was 
unbelievable. He taught me everything I could possibly ever know, not only about, you know, the baseball side of it, but, you know, athletic training, what do you do? How do you do it? How do you, how do you take care of the players? What's the best thing to do? And again, I was by myself, but it was great because I, I did it all myself, managed it, learned it. And then from then I moved to Seattle and I found out the Seattle Mariners job was open and I applied for it. And I laughed to myself as I filled out the application because I said, they're never going to hire a, a 26 year old who's going from rookie ball because the players have to go from rookie ball to the big leagues. And it's kind of that way for the athletic trainers. And, uh, I still to this day can't tell you why they hired me, but they did. And I stayed there for uh, 38 years. So yeah. pretty lucky. Yeah, beautiful. And I mean, I think part of that is creating your own luck, right? Like being in the right place at the right time doesn't just happen because you got lucky. I mean, you set yourself up by putting yourself out there and um, chasing challenges and accepting offers and accepting 500 bucks a month, you know, knowing that's not forever and five bucks a day to eat on the road. And you also, <laughs> you know, you also get to, experience the outdoors of Oregon just in a different way no backpacking and hiking exactly of, uh, yeah yep. on a bus <laughs> yeah that's it and hiking up and down the stairs in the dugout and out to the outfield and all those other good things so um uh, yeah a beautiful caption I think you know inspiring is one of the words that comes to mind but at the same time like a reality right as our students go through as younger therapists and trainers come out um you know it, it takes a little bit it takes certainly a little bit of luck but you create that luck by by taking opportunities by taking risks and sort of navigating all of those pieces and one thing you just touched on is the manager sort of guiding you in terms of um, what works best and what may be needed in the sport i think that's a really interesting take not being overly familiar with a sport um, but being qualified for a job and being adaptable. So in terms yeah. of characteristics of, of trainers and therapists along the way, um, yourself included or others that you've met along the way, the best in the business, the best that you know, the best that you've had the opportunity to interact with, um, are there certain characteristics that jump out to you that serve, uh, you know, that serve athletes, that serve the role uh, better than others? I, I think, and you said it to me, that the, the two most important things and the first one by far is the ability to adapt, adaptability. Um, I had 18 managers and I think I had seven or eight general managers. Now I could have walked into the office and told each one of those guys, well, this is how we do things here. And this is the way it's going to be done. If you do that, you get fired. You have to adapt to what your, Absolutely. your boss or your manager or your coach, you have to adapt to the way they want things done. If you adapt to them and do what they want done and do it to the very best of your ability, then you're going to have longevity and you're also going to have the ability to do things as you go along. I had a, I had one manager the first, his first year. And at the end of the year, he pulled me in his office and he said, I got to be honest with you. At the beginning of the year, I didn't know if I was going to keep you because I, I had a guy over in the organization that I was from before and I was going to bring him over here. And he said, but you, you did everything the exact way that I wanted it done. You were always communicative. You asked what I wanted. And that's what you have to do. You have to adapt and you have to communicate. That's the second thing in athletic training. Communication is probably the key. And you, and, and when you think of the word communication, that can go in so many different directions, but from the realm of athletic training, communication takes three or four major components. Number one is communicating and always being honest with your athletes. Sometimes you have to tell them things they don't want to hear and you have to, you have to give them tough love, but you have to communicate and be positive and honest. And if you do that, they will always respect you. They will look up to you and they will admire you. And when they go to other teams or they go to other places, they're going to talk about 
how how you treated them and how honest you were always with them and that that's that's a crucial thing is gaining your trust and then you have to communicate with your physicians you have to be on the same page as the physicians that you're working with you you can't you can't override them or you can't you know talk behind their backs and you have to make sure that you're always on the same page with them and then you have to work closely with either your manager or your head coach and there's a there's a triangle there if you work with the manager and you work with the head coach you work with the doctor and you work with the athlete and you're the person in the middle of that triangle then everything's going to work out the way it's supposed to be when you leave one of those people out then then there's an open area in that triangle and that information goes all over it goes everywhere and it doesn't stay or go where it needs to go so those are the three things and then in my case there's an there's an additional person you can make it into a square instead of a triangle and it's your general manager mm -hmm. uh you're, you have to make sure that your general manager knows every single thing possible i actually had a general manager one time tell me he said if i ever get surprised i will fire you on the spot and i go can you explain what you mean by that and he goes i don't want a reporter coming up to me and saying that they heard somebody was hurt and i don't know anything about it because that puts me in a bad spot i have to know everything that's going on all the time so in some instances, it's better to give too much information than not enough. But you have to make sure that the information is communicated to the four people that I just talked about. Because if you don't, you're not going to last very long. Yeah, absolutely. And and you talk about a square, you talk about a triangle. And then, you know, for me, it's a circle and it's closing the loop and just making sure that that full circle information comes back to you. So you know what's going on um, with everything that you need to know about as well. Um, I think the role of athletic trainers and athletic therapists in especially in the, in the, sp in the sports setting or the pro sports setting where uh, there's a lot of different roles. You know, you, you are managing injuries. You are responsible for acute things that happen during the game or during training sessions or practice. Uh, but at the same time, you're hearing a lot of things. You're hearing about family lives. You're hearing about, you know, uh, what's going on outside of the ballpark or outside of the yeah. stadium, these kinds of things. And so um, being aware and, and ensuring that you know, you're not front and center when delivering information, but you're there when you're needed and as you're needed. I think these are these are critical components and communication, obviously, and adaptability, as you touched on. Um, good lessons for all of us in, in every walk of life, I think, and beyond just athletic training. And so, um, yeah, th these are things I think that as we go and as we grow in this profession, um, more and more people can do better and better at being adaptable and, and communicating because those are things that will um, take you'll take everywhere you go in the profession and, and this day and age is a lot of trendy things there's a lot of things that end up sort of on the internet or instagram or whatever yep, yep. Um, and and none of them trump those two things you just touched on ever i don't think you know trends no, they don't go, but but those characteristics they stick and um, you mentioned it you know 35 38 years in in one organization you you i don't want to say survived i mean you you managed throughout those times um multiple managers multiple general managers um what was that like for you you talked about adaptability but obviously there's ebbs and flows when you get along with somebody and then wins and losses happen and, and they either find something else or or move on players get traded um how do you deal with that stuff as an athletic trainer because i think that stuff affects us as well as human beings in in, in those roles oh it it greatly affected me because I had never experienced that. Um, my first year in 1983, so that was my first job, I had a really very, very good manager. His name was Renee Latchman. He was a younger guy, very good communicator, had lots of energy, and he was a little bit outside of the box. There was still a lot of the old style, old school managers, and he was kind of new, new style. 
particularly about rules and things. He just wanted people to show up, be on time and play hard and, and, and just work hard. And uh, we did not have a very good team. And, and uh, I still remember, I think it was May 18th. I walked into the locker room and now this is my first time being in the big leagues. I walk in May 18th and I see the clubhouse guy packing up boxes, packing up bags. And it it's, looks like it's crazy in there. And I go, what's going on? And he goes, they just fired the manager. They fired the pitching coach. They fired one of the other coaches and they either traded or released six of the players. This wow. was in one day. Right. And it, that, that just blew me away because, you know, I was used to having the same minor league guys the whole time, especially in the lower levels. There's not a lot of movement. Now I walk in here and the manager's gone and we brought in a new manager who was the exact opposite. Uh, he was a very rules oriented manager, old school manager. Uh, he, the first day he handed out two pages of typewritten rules to every player uh, before we had three rules. And so it was a huge change. And we lost 102 games that year and we came in last place. And it was, it was really hard. And I was by myself. It was, that was a really, really tough year. And I remember talking about it with my wife at the time and saying, God, this is, this is really hard emotionally. It's hard. The travel is hard. Being away from home is hard. Plus you losing. It was, it was tough. And, and uh, we didn't have a winning season until uh 1990 90 uh excuse me 1991 was the first time we had a, a winning season so it took eight years for me to be you know in a situation where you had a winning season we only were two games over 500 so it wasn't like we were knocking anybody's socks off right but that the the losing part is tough because it affects the players it affects the manager the general managers are a lot of tension there's a lot of pressure there's a lot of stress and i had a i had an athletic trainer jimmy warfield from the Cleveland Indians tell me when I first started, he said the hardest thing with this job is keeping your mouth shut and you have to make sure you always do that. You say what needs to be said and you don't, you don't say any more than that. He said, you have to show up and work hard every single day. He said, but the hardest thing is when you start to win and you get loose, used to winning and then you go back and your team either rebuilds or you lose a lot. That's tough. And, and he was exactly right because I went through, a lot of losing. And then for about 12 or 14 years, we were really good. And we won a lot, went to the playoffs, funnest time, best time I ever had. And then the back end came back again, where we, the Mariners haven't been to the playoffs since 2021. Uh, I mean, excuse me, since 2001. So it's now 2022. So it's over 20 years. Right. They haven't been back to the playoffs. So, and we've had a couple of winning seasons, but that's tough when you, when you, experience losing and then you have the the joy of winning and then you go back to the losing it's tough and you gotta you gotta find ways to be maintain the the professionalism the positive attitude and and not get down in the dumps and uh that's that's what you gotta do you gotta stay positive gotta be innovative and you can't always like you said look on the internet and find a shiny object and think a shiny object's going to solve all the problems in the world because it doesn't work that way <laughs> yeah and it's back to basics and, and you know ebbs and flows with wins and losses and big long seasons and you know a 10 game winning streak can doesn't necessarily put you at the top and a 10 game losing streak in a, in a 162 game year doesn't necessarily bury you either so uh, it's, no. an, it's an interesting ride in in baseball and um you know <sighs> You talked to some some lean years and, and some other years. Obviously, some big names came through Seattle during your time. Ichiro, and, and I know you just did a, a little uh, program on him, but Ken Griffey and, and Buner and Martinez and a whole bunch of Randy Johnson, all these guys that came through during your time. Um, big names, big personalities, but but still human beings when it comes down to the core of each one of them. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I just sort of wanted to talk to a little bit on maybe just the injury side of things, no specifics, but uh, from an injury side of things, baseball, uh, a lot of people look at this and just say, oh, it's just, you know, it's it's just a, it's an easy sport. It's not overly taxing. But when you add up cumulative micro trauma to an elbow and shoulder, there's a lot of things to manage there. Um, in terms of acute things, did, did you ever, you know, what was your experience with acute on-field injuries, worst, maybe worst injury or, or things that were tough to manage that you uh, sort of saw acute? acutely on the field uh, you're, you're right about the wearing tear stuff and we can obviously talk about that but the the worst injury that i ever saw was my fourth day in the big leagues which it, it was during spring training we had an outfielder named donnell nixon his uh, older brother was otis who played for the atlanta braves donnell nixon was like a world-class sprinter he was unbelievably fast he was playing center field and we're having a spring training game against the Milwaukee Brewers in a stadium out in uh, Sun City. And before the games, what I used to do is I used to walk the field. I would walk the field and walk the outfield walls and stuff and just check. The outfield wall was made out of brick. Right. And not only was it made out of brick, there was no padding. But about every six inches, a brick was turned a quarter of the way. So the brick was sticking out about four to six inches. I go, who? why would you have a baseball stadium with a brick wall. And now you have the brick sticking out. That made no sense. So we actually had a meeting, the manager and I, with all the outfielders. And he told them, do not even go near the wall. Don't even think about trying to catch a ball near the wall. Well, sure enough, in about the second inning, a guy hits a ball in the outfield and Donnell Nixon takes off running. He's running full speed and he ran into the wall. And when he hit the wall, his shin hit one of those bricks that was sticking out. Jeez. And he had a compound fracture of his tibia and his fibula. And uh, it, it was it was really bad. It was nasty. I ran out there, and again, you hear that crack noise. I heard that in the dugout, and went out there, and it, it was it was a pretty bad injury. But the thing that was the worst is it took 17 minutes for an ambulance to get there. Right. And we had him stabilized, and he was doing okay. But it took 17 minutes, and he he ended up rehabbing for nine months, and he came back and played, but he was never quite as fast. And he did make it to the big leagues, but I mean, right off the bat, I had had that injury, uh, and I've had. A lot of guys get hit in the face with line drives, particularly pitchers. I've had pitchers get hit in the face. I've had pitchers get hit in the head. Uh, I've had, you know, dislocated fingers, dislocated ankle. Uh, so, but most of the injuries are, like you said, they're wear and tear mm -hmm. where it, they require uh, maintenance programs, education. You have to educate the players to the importance of reducing the micro trauma and how important it is to stay on a program and the pitchers. And I was super lucky because I, I felt like I had a very good teacher uh, named Stephen Roy down in Eugene. He taught me how to do a lot of things with surgical tubing and your hands, PNF patterns. And I started individual programs for each one of my pitchers. And one year, I believe it was 2004 or five, for the first time in uh, 44 years, all five of the pitchers that started the season, they made it through the whole year and didn't get hurt. Yeah. We had all five of them do that. And uh, that's kind of what I focused on. I was I took a lot of pride in keeping the pitchers on the field, and I, I worked majority with the pitchers. Seventy percent of all the injuries are to the pitchers, and seventy percent of them are also to the shoulder and elbow. So that was that was like my pride. I wanted to make sure and do everything I could to constantly um, just put programs together with guys, figure things out, talk about mechanics, talk about loading, talk about you know different types of modalities and. All the trips that I made to Japan, that's what I did. I spoke about, you know, rehab, conditioning programs in between starts. And, and that's something that I really took a lot of pride in. 
Yeah, absolutely, as you should. And and I think you mentioned sort of um, there was a good 10-year stretch there where you had, uh, you know, the least amount of injuries in baseball and in your career, and, and you had uh, um, really great programming with all the people you had on board. Um, in, in terms of longevity, in terms of the sport of baseball, and we look at it now, and, and for me, having worked, spent a little bit of time in baseball um, and played it growing up, there seems to be this, this massive shift towards, obviously, analytics and these kinds of things, but, but velocity and like how sexy velocity is with throwers and kids now at 10, 11, having radar guns on them. Um, your take on, on sort of the, the obsession with velocity or, or, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly with sort of uh, with those pieces in, in the sport yeah that, that that's a two-day seminar right there <laughs> absolutely definitely talk about it. yeah but i think i think the worst thing that is going on right now there's actually data to support this uh jamie reed has given a talk at three or four seminars that i've been to yeah. about this specificity in sport particularly specificity in baseball yeah. is absolutely the worst thing if, if you do not allow these you know 10 to 15 to 16 year old individuals particularly pitchers time to rest time to recover by the time they get to high school and college and the reason i can say this because i've reviewed the medical files of all these high school and college players uh 900 of them one year and 600 the other two years over 50 percent of the pitchers that i looked at have either had a shoulder injury or had tommy john surgery think about that over 50 percent and then and then what happens is when they when they've had a Tommy John surgery between the ages of 15 and 19 years old, the revision rate is seven years. So, you know, when you draft them as a 19 or 20 year old, you know that within seven years that the statistics show you that they're going to have to have Tommy John again. And you read about all these pitchers now in the major leagues. Now a really, really good pitcher for the Dodgers just had to have his second revision. I, I know another guy who had his third revision this year. The specificity of allowing these kids to play baseball year-round is causing all these problems. And they need they need to back off. Uh, some of these kids are in two and three different leagues, and they pitch two or three times a week. And when they don't pitch, then they play shortstop. And they do this year-round, and then they go to these showcases to get scholarships for college. And I can't, you, you, you have no idea how many phone calls I get from parents that tell me that their kid's going to be the next Nolan Ryan or my kid's going to be the next Randy Johnson. And they're 14 or 15 years old. And uh, this, real quick, this is, this is a little bit uh, outdated by a couple of years, but if you think of all of the players who have played in the Little League World Series that have pitched in the Little League World Series, they're, they're the 12-year-old's best pitchers in the world. They come from all over the world, and they play in this, in this college World Series or this Little League World Series. Right. Uh, up to two years ago, I don't, I don't know the last two years because we haven't been together to, to tell you this, but in, in all of those kids that have played since the 1950s, only five of those pitchers have ever made the big leagues. So right. only five. So they're 12 years old, and all these people think that their kids are going to be in the big leagues, it's just a really tough thing to do. And if you if you wear them out and you teach them to throw curveballs and sliders when they're 13 years old because they're dominating kids in Little League, by the time they're 16, 17, their arms are shot and they don't even get a chance to maybe pitch in college or get drafted. So it's really important that everybody, you know, picks up on this and tries to recommend rest, recommend making smart choices and, and trying to stop the specificity. And the same thing's going on with basketball. In football and 
I actually listened to a podcast the other day and they talked about how robotic baseball is becoming because the athleticism in baseball is, is probably being decreased and going down a little bit because they're mostly worried about speed. They're worried about launching or they're worried about swing speed with a bat. And the athleticism is, is probably not as good as it was even five years ago. And so that, that's something that I'm very passionate about is trying to educate and, and talk about specificity. And these kids need to rest. Major league pitchers don't pick a baseball up for at least three or four months. But we got 14-year-olds playing year-round, you know, and that, that's just something that's got to stop. Yeah, little big leaguer syndrome. It's a, it's a tough one. I mean, we we experience it here in hockey and, uh, you know, hips and groins and these kinds of things and, and hernia repairs, sports hernia injuries in, in 13, 14-year-olds, labral tears, uh, you know, oh, know, resurfacing of the hips, these kinds of things by 15, 16. It's, um, you know, the greater our technology gets, the faster and bigger our athletes get. Uh, not too much has changed when it comes to injury rates and, and you know, and how things happen and why things happen. And especially Specialization and specificity in sport training is a, is a topic I'm sure we could talk on for for years, days, years, months. I don't know all of that, and 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 probably never come up with uh, a good solid answer other than education matters, taking a break matters, diversity in in exploration of movement and human movement patterns matters, yeah. and, and those pieces. Um, last thing before we go, because I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you're traveling tomorrow, jet setting across the globe to do some amazing things, but. Um, uh, the education piece. Do you want to talk to PBATS and just sort of uh, that the Professional Baseball Athletic Trainer Society? It's an educational society for uh, for across the globe. And so, if you want to speak to that, just to to finish it up, you, you do a lot of really good work, obviously uh, within the Mariners organization, but but for trainers as well. Yeah, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about that. Um, PBATS, the Professional Baseball Athletic Trainer Society, is an amazing group of athletic trainers. Uh, obviously, they're based in baseball. It, it was started in 1983, and I was lucky enough to be one of the original charter members. And uh, because we're an educational society, we're always trying to come up with ideas to to not only educate the, the individuals who are in our minor leagues, but we consider ourselves to be a worldwide society because baseball is a is a worldwide sport. And so, what we've done over the years, uh, and and I've been fortunate enough to been I have been the chairman of the international committee for PBAT since um, 1987, which is a long time. <laughs> and I, I still love doing that. But we started off, we started off in Japan. Uh, we established and we, we provided and did seminars in Japan for eight years. We would go over in the off season, we'd take four athletic trainers and we would go over and we would do lectures for athletic trainers in baseball, professional athletic trainers in baseball. The first time I went to Japan, there were seven certified athletic trainers in Japan. There are now over 400, and that's something that I take a lot of pride in because I feel I've been involved enough over there to to inspire and educate, and, and we have a lot of athletic trainers from Japan in our universities in the United States. There's over 200 of them, and they're all wanting to get their degrees in athletic training, and many of them go back and work in Japan in the industrial setting and in baseball and their club sports settings. So we started in Japan, and since then we've established programs with Ireland, uh, with the UK, um, we use a university in Ireland called Carlo University, and we place their students in our spring training complexes. We've had over 25 of their students, um, and we've had students from the UK, from Salford University and St. Mary's University. Those are placed with uh, students in Arizona, 
And I can't thank the athletic trainers enough that are with these teams, because if they weren't willing to take these students on, we would never have these programs, but it ends up being a great thing. They love it. The athletes love having the, the students come from the UK and Ireland. We've had students come from Latin America. We've had students come from Australia, from Italy and uh, Korea. So we're, we're constantly trying to establish things. Um, PBATS put on the first uh, World Congress with the NATA, and we did that in London. And we also did one with JATO in uh, Tokyo. And we're in the process right now of planning a seminar to go in uh, Japan, either in November of 23 or January of 24. So we have internships available for students in the United States. It's not only international, but we also have students available, uh, internship opportunities available. And every year in the NATA news in January, I believe it comes out and you can apply for those. And what happens is then the students can go and they actually get to work in the major league setting for it. Sometimes they're for a couple of months or, or a couple of weeks or maybe a homestand, but you get the opportunity to go in and see kind of what it's like, decide if that's something you want to do. And a lot of, a lot of students end up getting hired in major league baseball to do full-time internship programs with baseball teams because a number of the teams have paid internships that they hire athletic trainers to come in and work. And then if you do a great job, then you have an opportunity to get into baseball. And I do, I do want to say that it's not only the male athletic trainers, the female athletic trainers are really growing in professional baseball and in professional sports. And, and we absolutely encourage and love the opportunity to work with the female athletic trainers that are interested in, in coming into baseball. So our society does a lot of great things and we're continually trying to evolve and do things. And um, now PBATS is working with WFAT, which is exciting to me because I get to be involved in that realm as well. Um, and that's how we met up in Winnipeg. But uh, we're just we're always evolving. We're trying to do more. We try and encourage uh, athletic trainers from all over the world to, to be involved in what we're trying to offer. And and uh, we just keep, keep trying to get better. Yeah. Um, and a phenomenal capture. And I think for, for everybody out there listening, check out PBATS. It's, it's a great organization, whether that's something you want to do, something a student may want to do, um, or just seeing how an educational society like that really works and, and can inform across the globe. Um, Rick Griffin is our guest at session 109 of Let's Chat, an athletic therapy podcast, the official podcast of WFAT. And, uh, um, and a, a, a selfless role that you do, that you take on as an athletic trainer in baseball and um, always giving back and, and giving back to the athletes, giving back to the organization, the club that you're working with. Um, and then on a grander scale to, to the profession as a whole, Rick, I, I truly am humbled and honored to, for you to provide us with the insight to give us your time and uh, and share all of this with us because I think this is what makes our profession grow this is what showcases all of the good things in our profession whether it's in professional sports or in the high school settings or the internship opportunities and, and just sharing your story and your passion it's palpable and and I think it goes a really really long way so um, I'll leave you to close it out with whatever you wish to, to leave on um, but thank you again for, for all of your time all the best on your, your journeys over there in Europe and I look forward to reconnecting again maybe on an educational forum in the future um but i'll leave it to you it's rick griffin he is the man of the hour uh with the pbats the professional baseball athletic trainer society longtime trainer head trainer with the seattle mariners now retired but still doing amazing things across the globe rick to you to close it out thank you again 
Well, thank you very much. And uh, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to share not only my story, but to, to hopefully encourage uh, athletic trainers to step out their box a little bit and don't be afraid to hear the word no and, and go for your dream, go for your goals. Um, it's okay to hear no because there's a yes around the corner. I always remember that. And it's been my, my privilege to be on here with you. And I hopefully will see you soon, if not here, maybe over in Israel next year uh, at the WFAT seminar. But uh, all my best to you and good luck. And thank you for having me on. All right. Take care, everybody. Thanks again. Thanks again for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being a part of this community. Check us out online. FirstStarTherapy.com That's F-I-R-S-T-A-R Therapy.com Or email us with feedback. Consult at FirstStarTherapy.com C-O-N-S-U-L-T at FirstStarTherapy.com On Instagram at FirstStar.Therapy And our podcast host at Let's chat.at. This is First Star Let's Chat, an athletic therapy podcast.